Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Mike Lucan, founder of Rock Capital. Some of you might recognize Mike from the podcast earlier in this year in February, where I'll reference that at the start of the podcast, and you can go back and listen to that if you'd like. But we took the unusual step of having the same guest back on the podcast, given an opportunity that was presenting itself in private equity secondary markets, which is really interesting. And I think you'll enjoy listening to it as much as I did. Please remember the podcast isn't designed to be, nor is it specific financial advice or advice of any sort. You're encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of this podcast. You are, however, encouraged to keep sending that information uh, about what future guests you'd like to have on and any feedback that you have through to me at david.clark at codacapital.com. I should also start to thank the producers of the show and the people who make it all happen. So thanks to Tom Oriel, who helps produce the show, and as well as Josh Clark at Parakeet Productions, who edits and produces the show as well. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Mike Lucan, welcome back to Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. Good to be here. Well, I think you uh, set a record in that uh, I can't remember anyone coming back on the podcast so quickly. And uh, it it was episode 137 uh, back in February this year, uh, which you appeared. So our listeners who Mm. are keen to understand more about rock and the background um, can go back to that and, and have a listen to that as a reference. But it's really an opportunity or something that's arisen in a market that's brought us together today to talk yeah. back to it. So congratulations for, for coming back on and thanks for that. Um, uh, look, people can go back and listen to that, but there's also people who have picked up this episode and want a bit of a, a background. I, I think I probably, if I can maybe give a, a quick uh, summary and I'll let you improve All on right, it after that, in, in that Rocks a group that was uh, founded in, I think, 2014 via a management buyout from Macquarie. Yep. Um, and that, Correct. and it was a private assets group within Macquarie, which I, I want to say was operating since about 1996. Pretty good. Um, yep. I reckon you've got about 65 professionals within the firm. What three are you? out of three. Sydney, Hong Kong, Melbourne, and, and you might be in Shanghai. Is that right? Correct. Right, yeah. And so the way I see it and the way I'd summarize to people is, look, we got a lot of feedback from the first podcast and a lot of people mm. was, yeah, I know Mike Lucan. He's a really smart operator and those guys are good. That okay. Sucks. So, so yeah, well, you know, it's not a lot we say that. And I thought this opportunity that's come along sounds very interesting. So perhaps firstly expand on that summary if you want to about who Rock is or your background if you want and then maybe talk about the opportunity that's brought us here today. Yeah, no, that sounds good, David, and thanks for the opportunity. Hopefully I've got something to say, given it hasn't been that long since I was here. But uh, look, I think the I think you did a pretty good job uh, describing Rock Partners. Um, we've been investing globally in private equity since the early 2000s, uh, mostly on behalf of institutional investors. And so We've seen the ups and downs. You know, I started my career just before the dot-com 1.0 era when Aussies started investing in kind of what was venture capital. It wasn't known as venture capital then. I think it was called private equity, but we've kind of described it differently now. Um, We've been, you know, kind of in and out of markets over that time. Uh, And what's really kind of interesting as we speak is there's an emerging opportunity around secondary transactions that we're we're really excited about. 
And it's driven by a couple of things. And it really probably takes, you know, a bit of description over the last, what's happened over the last three or four years in private markets. So let, let's define what a secondary transaction or a secondary market yeah. first. Yeah. So most times when you're investing in private equity, uh, what tends to happen is a private equity manager will come to you and he'll say, David, I, uh, I've got this really good idea for a mid-market buyout strategy. And so can you give me, in essence, a line of equity that I can go out and find investment opportunities to deploy the, your capital into over the next three or four years? And so that's known as blind pool investing. So you actually don't know what you're investing in until three or four years down the track. And then you've got a portfolio of deals that have been done in the market that the private equity manager will talk about. And so when we talk about secondary transactions, what we talk about is actually buying someone else's positions in these private equity firms. Uh, or these funds, in fact. Because normally they're a 10-year lock-in round trip type of thing. That's right. So, so long first, in first three or four years, the private equity firm's kind of finding deals to do. The next three or four years, they're trying to improve the businesses that they own. And then the last three or four years, they're really trying to exit those positions. And so what the secondary kind of model kind of offers up is an opportunity to kind of short circuit the whole private equity you know, round robin. So rather than waiting three or four years to get that portfolio set, you can buy someone's position in that fund um, that's already four or five years into its fund life. And so turning a 10-year fund structure into a five or six-year fund structure. Uh, and, and perhaps, you know, kind of, you know, why would people do that? Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of different reasons and it might be simple regulatory issues. So it might be that a bank can't hold private equity anymore, which is what we saw after the global financial crisis. It might be a change in the way that fees are reported. So talking about the local superannuation funds uh, and more focus on fees. Uh, it might be um, outside the regulatory environment, it might be a change in management. So you see this a lot, say in the US and you know, some of the more mature private equity programs where one CIO or one head of private markets will come in and have a very specific approach to private equity uh, and then they move on and someone else comes in and they have a very different proposition that they want to execute on in the market. And then you just see people who get, a, you know, ahead of their skis. And so they've allocated to private equity, uh, they've allocated the venture capital, it's all been great for the last three years, lots of money coming back, using leverage to get set. And then all of a sudden you have a market like we're in today where leverage is more expensive, distributions have slowed down, and you've got these allocated allocations out there in the market that are going to be drawn on and you actually don't have the capital to kind of, you know, kind of make those commitments when they come. And so and you become what we call a distressed seller, really trying to get out of the position before uh, you find yourself in default from the private equity firm calling you for money. And so there's a whole bunch of reasons why people look to sell. And specifically today, one of the things we've seen is, you know, over the last three or four years, this real kind of sprint in private markets. So you've seen particularly kind of just after COVID where, you know, the market kind of felt like people had kind of worked out that COVID was a thing, but it was going to be okay um, and so what you saw is a lot of money go into venture capital, a lot of money go into private equity, a lot of money go into private markets more generally. And on the back of that, this velocity of capital raising and this kind of 
increased hold in private markets that no one was really kind of modeling out. So typically, you know, when we're working with institutional investors, we'll do what we call a portfolio placing model. That pacing model, what it'll give you is a view that over the next five years, I want to be deploying, you know, 10 million, 50 million, 100 million, whatever the number is into private markets. And generally, the, you know, the long-term kind of average kind of time between a private equity manager coming back from one fundraising to the next is three or four years. And what we saw through 2020, 21, 22 was, you know, in, in particular in the venture capital growth equity space, these three-year fundraising cycles turn into one-year fundraising cycles. The buyout guys came into probably two years. And then interestingly, we've also seen this kind of longer hold period for assets in private markets. So as more money's coming to private equity uh, and venture capital, what we've seen is the ability to hold these businesses private for longer has been extended. And so a business that may have floated on NASDAQ or on the Australian Stock Exchange three or four years after getting venture capital funding can now stay private for six, seven, eight, nine, ten years in some cases. So what that means is when you're modeling out your allocation to private markets, you've had more commitments have to be put in the market more quickly. And then you've had your asset base held longer in your portfolio. And so all of a sudden your asset allocation target, which might've been five or 6% to private equity is now at six, seven, eight and running up. And then to overlay that, you know, over the course of the last 18 months, we've seen in, a, in essence, a, a trade down in listed markets, both the equity market and the fixed income markets coming off. And as a result of that, people are over allocated. And, you know, some, you know, anecdotally, you know, some investors in the US and Europe in particular are really over allocated. So having, you know, private equity firms come through our office over the last few weeks, we're hearing about traditional investors in private equity saying, we can't actually invest for the next 18 months. We've got no money. We're waiting for distributions to come back. Uh, and then even there, we're really being selective about how we redeploy those distributions. So there's a real gap in the market over the 18, next 18 months for, for capital in private equity. Uh, what that'll mean is it'll mean two things. One is uh, over the next 18 months, it's going to be really hard to raise funds. Traditional private equity funds are going to be more difficult to raise. And interestingly, we're starting to see the impact of that, you know, a number of, you know, what I'd call, you know, top 10, top 20 funds around the world coming to Australia, coming, you know, kind of in person and saying, we're looking for capital uh, for our latest fundraise. And, and is that something new? That's something new. It's something new since probably 2008 to 2010, the kind of the bottom of the global financial crisis where, you know, kind of Kleiner Perkins opens its books to new investors for the first time. We're seeing a similar, uh, similar kind of situation play out today where firms that, you know, three years ago were invitation only and, uh, and in particular kind of existing investors taking up any growth in capacity, those firms now turning around and saying, well, actually... Uh, we'd like to take some, call it Australian institutional capital or Australian high net worth capital because we want a diversified investor base and you guys are in kind of the sweet spot for that. And so what that means is we're seeing access to these funds that were closed to, to new investors. Um, in essence, the reason being those traditional investors, long-term investors in some of these asset classes are really over allocated. Mm -hmm. And so they can't grow with their underlying private equity firms.
So I think what I'm hearing also is this denominator effect where 2022 for just about every asset class, except for maybe some commodities and so forth, was a really poor year. Yeah. And a lot of those listed particular exposures were valued down dramatically, which means, you know, institutional investor with their asset allocation at let's call it 10% to private equity, is now fronting up to the investment committee and saying, well, we're actually at 13% and, well, here's my strategy to, re- to, to get us back to 10%. And the only way they can get there if they're locked in for the next five, six, seven, ten 10 years across the maturity or the vintage of that portfolio is to sell some secondaries. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So slow down new capital going into the uh, portfolio through smaller allocations to new funds being raised or kind of reducing number of funds you're going to raise. And then the other side of it is selling positions. And, and interestingly, what we see through these cycles, and it's kind of time and again, we see the same cycle, is people tend to sell stuff at the wrong time. Um, they tend to sell stuff that's furthest away from home. Uh, and they tend to sell stuff they don't understand. And so for a lot of the, the best opportunities, what we think we'll see is opportunities take advantage of sellers who are you know, really pressing up against their hard allocation limits uh, for private equity, uh, looking to reduce their exposure to a core group of names, core group of relationships that are generally within a, you know, one short flight away from their home market. So if they're in Europe, they'll retain the European stuff. They'll sell their stuff out of the US and Asia. If they're Asian investors, they'll sell their stuff in US and Europe. Uh, and the US investors will sell stuff in Asia and Europe. Yep. And sort it's of like kind the expansion like, model. That exactly. Can- contracts. And and in the past, when there's been transactions in the secondary market, what sort of valuations have they been done versus what you're expecting in the next 18 months? Yeah. So that, that's a really good question, David. And I think there's two parts to think about valuation and discounts. And so one is the underlying valuation that the portfolio is held at by the private equity firm. Mm-hmm. And so as you mentioned, 2022, top of the market, we've seen retracement down across equity markets. Um, I think you've had Canva down 30 odd percent. Yeah, that's right. That so, so, you know, give Canva as the example, right? If you kind of bought a a secondary in Canva at a 20% discount to the valuation before that write down, you're actually buying it at a 10% premium to its current valuation. So the first place we always go to is what's the valuation? And, you know, it's not just Canva, but it's across the entire market. If you think about listed markets off 10 to 20%, that takes time to play through into the private equity valuations. And so you see that kind of play out over a 12 to 18 month period. And it might be through the valuation, the absolute valuation coming down, or it might be through earnings actually kind of the business growing into its valuation through earnings growth. And so the first part we look at is what's the valuation metric that the private equity firm's looking at and utilizing to kind of value its asset. Uh, And so if you're kind of buying at the bottom of the market, you are getting in at a good valuation. If you're buying at the top of the market, even a, say, 20 or 30% discount might be too much. And if you look at what's happened in venture capital uh, and the secondary market in venture capital at the moment, uh, valuations in the secondary market are like a 50% discount. So a really deep discount. Um, part of that is the kind of secondary kind of discount that you're looking for. So I think, you know, we're always looking for, you know, kind of 20%, 25%, maybe 30% discount, depending on the quality of the asset, um, pathway to liquidity, uh, diversification of the portfolio. Um, 
So you've got this kind of two-factor effect when you're thinking about valuation and discount. So we're, we've kind of been holding off in the secondary market because we've wanted that valuation of the underlying assets to fall, which is what we're kind of coming to now. We're seeing, you know, the last 12 months of valuations either being stagnant or falling, and then still a relatively deep and good discount for buying those positions. So the kind of discount on buyouts is still at around 20%. Compared to two years ago, it was kind of closer to 5%. And venture capital, as I mentioned, um, trading at a you know much deeper discount. So, And there's been times and years, correct me if I'm wrong here, that because as you alluded to, you know, private equity is often a, a virtuous circle, if you'd like, and, you know, the best managers get the best deals and then they get the best performance. They're the hardest to get into. You have to be invited in, exactly. et cetera, et cetera. Um, there have been years when secondaries have actually sold for a premium of NAV because people just couldn't get in. They're willing to pay a premium. So I think what you're Absolutely. talking about here is the potential opportunity to get at some of those names and get at them at a discount Um to, to last nav and also in a secondary sense as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think one of the interesting things, um, you know, as we looking at the, we're looking at the secondary opportunity is, you know, we are an investor in these funds uh, on a primary basis as well across our kind of portfolio of clients. And so if you're a private equity firm and one of your investors says you want to sell, um, the private equity firm generally first and foremost wants to give it to their existing investors um, because there's nothing in it for the private equity firm when an investor says they want to sell. They're already getting 2 and 20 on that position. So for them, it's just additional work and additional uh, head noise to try to kind of explain to an incoming investor why the valuation is what it is and what the happening, what's happening at the portfolio when they're going to exit these assets. Uh, so for them, existing investors are you know kind of first prize because ease of dealing and existing investors that are likely to support the new fundraise. And then second prize is really new investors, new pools of capital, where a private equity firm says, geez, I'd love to have David in my um, list of, of investors. He's a new pool of capital. He's from Australia. I've got an Australian investors. I know it's a big pool of pension fund assets. I'd love to diversify my investor base. love to have an excuse to come to Australia. Um, why don't I get David in and I'll help him understand the portfolio and maybe I'll give him a bit more information than what I'll give the seller because that seller is no longer of value to me. So I'll help David kind of understand that there's an IPO coming in three months. I've got a bid on this asset at this price. And so you can bid 15% discount and still make really good money on this trade because I want David, I want to go to Australia, I want to kind of, you know, kind of look at what's happening in the private equity market in Australia and, and meet more Australian investors. So I'll, I'll utilise this to my advantage. So Mike, tell me about the product solution or fund solution that Rock ha- has put together to take advantage of this opportunity you're seeing. Yeah. So we're uh, we're raising a relatively small global secondaries fund. Um, you know, when we're thinking about new product, we're generally thinking about, you know, providing a solution. And we very rarely see opportunities in the market like we're seeing now around taking advantage of this, you know, over allocation problem that we're seeing from traditional LP investors around the world Uh, and really kind of looking at the market structure and dynamic, you know, a lot of the kind of capital in the secondary market is in really big funds. Uh, And so what we're looking to do is really be really specific and, um, look to take advantage of small kind of positions 
vendors that are selling one or two kind of specific fund positions they want to get out of, maybe five to $20 million in size. These are the types of positions that are just, you know, kind of they talk about the supermodel that doesn't get out of bed for $10,000. These are the secondary transactions that the big guys don't get out of bed for. It just doesn't move the needle when you're raising $22 billion mm-hmm. to do a $10 million deal. And so we're looking to raise a you know relatively small fund with hard capped it at two hundred million US um, to take advantage of these positions you know twenty kind of positions of ten million dollars in size top tier private equity firms around the world taking advantage of that deal flow that we think we'll see kind of coming out of the market over the next eighteen months. And will you be buying individual positions in the companies or the actual fund position? Will you sort of like take five percent of their portfolio? Or will you take a handful of the clients. So we're, we'll, we'll be looking at fund positions predominantly. We, we will have the ability to do direct secondaries, which mm-hmm. is buying individual portfolio companies. But we think the real opportunity today is in those fund positions. And the reason being that generally you're getting those at a discount. That's where you can get a discount. And then you also get the benefit of really short-term liquidity. So if you think that, you know, you roll forward 18 months you know, the world's worked out inflation. They've worked out what interest rates are going to do. People are starting to think about growth again. That's really a great time in the market to have a portfolio of mature private equity assets. Uh, you know, they'll be the first ones to go to IPO. They'll be the ones that are trade sold. Uh, and so what you get by buying a fund position is you firstly get a discount. So it might be the 15%, it might be 30%, it might be whatever it is. But then also you got this really neat pathway to liquidity. You're not hanging around for seven years waiting for liquidity from your private equity portfolio. So you, you sidestep the J curve. You sidestep the J curve. You know, you've got a mature portfolio. It's four to five years old. Even your un, unrealized gains, hopefully you're starting to see in the portfolio happen from pretty much day one. Uh, and then you're already getting your money back. So if you're a new investor in private equity, this is a really good way to get set um, because you're not hanging around for five or six years to start seeing returns and you're not waiting seven or eight years to see liquidity back. And the the geographical spread you're talking about, if I've had a look at some of the documents and I think you're talking about sort of 45% US, 25% uh, Europe and about 20% Australia. Yeah. And, and about a 10% to, to Asia yep. and hard cap. But I noticed it seemed to be hard cap Asia 10% and not the rest. Talk to me about that sort of split and why. Yeah, so there's there's probably two reasons around that. One is um, we do offer a dedicated Asia secondaries fund. Uh, and so we don't want to have product in the market competing with itself um, for, for deal allocation. We've got a deal allocation policy, but, you know, in essence – um, you know, the Asia fund is a different fund and, and kind of we want to kind of give people the opportunity. If they want to do Asia in a, in a bigger way, they can do the Asia fund specifically. I think also, um, you know, the kind of, you know, what we're looking to achieve with this fund is really more reflective of a global private equity program. So, you know, the, the bulk of the money in private equity is in the US. You know, the next largest market is Europe. Um, we're a little bit overweight Australia, but I think, you know, our investor base is Australia, so they will want to have some Australian exposure. And there's also, you know, tax advantages to being kind of, um, you know, investing in Australian in, in Australian investments. Uh, and so really kind of what we're trying to do with this fund is give people a, you know, kind of beginner's guide to private equity. How do you get mm-hmm. set in private equity? How do you build a global private equity program that's well diversified, that can give me money back quickly, that can give me a return straight off the bat? Uh, and 
almost have a one-stop shop. This is how you can deploy money globally into private equity. Um, as people get more sophisticated and they get a better understanding of private equity, they might want to do our Asian secondaries fund yep, more they specifically. Can, they can start taking a rifle shot at Correct. What, where, where they've got the conviction. Exactly right. In, in terms of, it's interesting you said their venture capital um, was known as private equity and this is one of the things, you know, very early on in my career I was an analyst in a corporate finance team operating in the sort of capital raising space in that technology area. And, mm. you know, I, I can remember all the very, everything from pre what you'd call now pre-seed, seed and all these sort of names people accompany, it was all just referred to as private equity. Yeah. And and still today I find, particularly in Australia, a lot of investors when you start talking about private equity, think venture capital. Yeah. What sort of stage companies or exposures do you expect you'll have across this portfolio? Are you talking early in that sort of seed, pre-seed, venture capital or growth capital or private equity or leverage buyouts, basically? Yeah. We're, we're about to hear sort of thing. So, so our real sweet spot, I guess, investing globally, and, and it comes back to we want to kind of identify secondary opportunities with the firms we've known for 20 years. Um, our real sweet spot for all, everything we do in private equity is really what we call small cap, mid cap buyout. You know, we want to be large enough that these are mature businesses, they're profitable, they've got strong management teams, um, but there's still the ability for private equity to add value. You know, we're not relying on, you know, the IPO window to exit. And, you know, there's multiple shots at goal for selling a business. Um, we're not really riding the the kind of beta of the listed markets that but, you see. But this isn't sort of metaverse, crypto, AI. No. No, Companies with no revenue. This pre- is boring stuff like healthcare and business services and government services and, you know, kind of, you know, consumer services, kind of, you know, consumer staples. And, and what yeah. sort of valuation metrics would typically be applied to those underlying companies? Yeah, so you're really talking EBITDA multiples. Okay, right? that's good. It's, we seem to be in the land of sanity here. Yeah, 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 yeah. We don't we don't really get comfortable with eyeballs or uh, yeah, click, you know, click throughs. click throughs. That's not really our kind of our our kind of thing. So, you know, we can kind of get comfortable, you know, with revenue multiples on on some businesses where there's a clear unit economics that's profitable and and a business that's on its pathway to strong profit profitability. But at the end of the day, 80% of what we do is we're buying this thing on seven times EBITDA. Uh, We can add to management, we can kind of improve the business and we can sell it on 10 times EBITDA to the next buyer. Uh, That's pretty repeatable and and hence why we really focus on small cap, mid cap. It's where repeatability is best in private markets. You can roll out the same playbook and make money time and time and time again. Talk to me about why Rock for this type of transaction. I suspect the answer is somewhere in your unique position in the market that you play. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think, you know, where what it comes back to is probably a couple of things. So firstly, we've been investing globally in private equity for over 20 years. Uh, and we've got the trust and confidence of a whole bunch of institutional investors to uh, do that on their behalf. And so what that means is that we've got relationships with private equity firms around the world that um, that want us as an investor, that know us, and we know them. So that's really important, uh, particularly in this secondary transaction, as I spoke about, David, where there's nothing in it for the private equity firm. So for them, an easy, quick solution is best. Uh, and so having that longevity with these firms is really important. Secondarily, I think, you know, the fact that we're an Australian firm um, you know, it's still remarkable how few Australian investors are investing in global private equity. 
And so you go to some of the best brands in the private equity market and they'll still say, we've got no Australian investors and we'd love to have Australian investors. Um, you know, uh, a private equity firm's always looking at diversity in their investor base because it speaks to the robustness of yeah. their business model. So the, the, you know, the more diversified, the better And Australia, you know, so again, we kind of bat above, above our weight, I guess, or punch above our weight, given we are Australian that, most of these groups actually want more Australian representation on their on their um, LP. They've, they've heard about our superannuation uh, yeah. program. Yeah, and you know, like it's remarkable how many times they sit there and say, "Well, you guys are the second largest pool yeah. of capital in the world, and yeah. I can't get a cracker out of you guys." Right? <laughs> so we can be that conduit, and I think that's really valuable. Um, and, and then, you know, I think we, you know, we, thirdly, we've been doing secondaries for a long time, and we have this real bottoms up approach to secondary transactions. So. You know, we talk about discounts, but really what we're trying to do is value things bottom up and say, how can we get this cheaper than what we think the intrinsic value is and how much cheaper can we get it for? Um, and then importantly, and, and I think this gets overlooked a little bit when people are thinking about secondaries, how quickly can we get our money back out, right? So ideally, you know, if we put a dollar into a secondary trade, we want to get a dollar out within two years. And that really de-risks your, your kind of your kind of transaction. If if you're really kind of you know playing with profit from year two on, you know you can take a longer term view from there. So we're really thinking about valuation, discount to valuation, quality of the portfolio, and then kind of pathway to liquidity. The kind of the key things we're looking for. And and what does the process? look like? Is it a competitive process? Is it something put out to tender or is this sort of a relationship phone call? Hey, can you guys take this office? Yeah. So it's probably, it's probably breaks into three distinct segments when I think about it. So the, the first is you've got a brokerage market, just like, you know, any other market, there's a whole bunch of people that trade these things on a regular basis. A seller will come to them and say, can you sell my portfolio? And they'll give us a ring and say, here's a book, bid on the book. Uh, and so we'll, we'll kind of play in those. Uh, generally, where we're successful is if we've got an information advantage on, you know, a small line item that's irrelevant to the broader portfolio. So we can pull that out and, uh, and get a really good deal. Very uh, different to public markets in terms of information flow yeah. and information availability, yeah. right? There's no insider trading rules in private markets. No, that's right, which is, you know, terrific. We love it. We love insider information when we're doing secondaries. It's mm -hmm. kind of like the best way to, to make good money is taking advantage of that. And that really speaks to probably um, the the second, you know. So if I think about one-third's probably broker-driven, one-third's probably outbound, you know, kind of reaching out to investors in these funds. So we might do an AGM or a quarterly catch-up or a lunch or whatever with a private equity firm and they'll say, oh, Mike, we've got a great portfolio here. It's trading really strongly. And this business is going to IPO and I've been hit by a trade buyer for this business and the valuations are this. And so pretty quickly we can kind of sum that up and say, well, actually, you know, buying that portfolio is really attractive as a secondary trade. I know I'm getting an uplift because the IPO is an uplift, the trade sale is an uplift. I know I'm getting liquidity back off the IPO and trade sale. Um, so we'll actually then go out and say, uh, you know, private equity firm one, um, who are their investors? Let's ring all those investors in that fund and say, guys, we've got a deal for you. We'd love to buy your position in this fund. We'll pay you 90 cents in the dollar when they're, in fact, we know it's like going to trade at a dollar fifty in three weeks' time. Um, and so we sometimes get hit from those. You know, you never know unless you ask whether someone's a seller. 
And so we can take advantage of that and say, you know, that's a really strong bid in the market. We should take that. Uh, and particularly if they don't have information and it goes back to that, you know, kind of ability to tap the information and, and being close to your relationships, that's matters. And then the final third is really um, the private equity firms themselves. So they'll sit there and say, oh, geez, you know, David's selling out. Uh, it's what a headache for me. Um, I know the guys at Rock can do secondary transactions. I know they're efficient. They've been doing it for 20 years. They've done 100 trades. Um, I'm going to give Mike a call and say, can you guys just kind of do a deal and buy these guys out? They want to go. And, you know, if there's anything you need from me, I'm happy to help. But you guys know everything in the book anyway. So, so that's kind of probably a rough breakdown of how we see the market. So really two-thirds is really super proprietary stuff where – we're using our information to take a, you know, kind of to take a view on mar- on the market and and positions in the in in the market that are looking to be sold, and then one third is really working that broker market and and being a little bit smarter around how we work that broker market. So we won't be bidding on billion dollar transactions against, you know, some of those large firms that use leverage to try to get uh, returns. We're really going out and saying, well, that's a billion dollar kind of trade, but that twenty million dollar piece there, that one line item. I know I know better than whoever's going to buy the billion dollar trade. So I can bid on that separately and get a good deal. So it's really being, you know, using our database, our networks, our relationships to drive good deal flow. And Mike, um, talk to me a little bit about alignment of interest between yourselves uh, as the general partner and the key principles of the firm. How do you guys yeah. uh, align with potential investors into this fund? Yeah, no, look, it's a, it's a really good point. And I think I mentioned him in the last podcast how important kind of following the money and alignment of interest is mm. uh, in this game. And, uh, and so, look, you know, kind of one of the reasons for founding the business was getting stronger alignment. Um, so, you know, we're all investors in the fund. Uh, we'll be a couple of percent of the total fund will come from, you know, the, the kind of members of the, the rock team. Um, we have, you know, performance, you know, fees as the key way we get remunerated. We Which get, are... Roughly? Roughly 20% of profits above an 8% mm-hmm. and really driven by cash back. So um, we need to deliver all the capital back and an 8% return and then we get 20% of proceeds once we get over that threshold. So very much back-ended about, you know, sharing in the upside once we've delivered good returns back to investors. Um, and then, you know, Rock's employee-owned, 70% employee-owned. So, we you know, our reputations are everything. If we do a bad job investing in this fund or any other fund, really takes, a, you know, kind of a lot of value out of the Rock franchise. So we only really want to launch these kinds of products where there's a great opportunity in the market. Uh, we prefer to be nimble and raise smaller pools of capital, sh- small windows, get them invested, get them right at the right time in the cycle. And then maybe, you know, if the market rallies 50, 60, 70%, we'll all be happy, right? But we may not come back to market with a fund too in that scenario. So mm-hmm. really kind of about that alignment and, you know, we'll obviously, you know, put you know, plenty of capital in behind it because we do see it as probably the best opportunity out there in the on a private equity funds market at the moment. Mike, thanks. That's been a great summary. What no, have I missed? You. What should I have asked that I haven't? Uh, what should you ask? When, when do we think uh, this opportunity is arising? I think it's a 2024 opportunity. Uh, you know, I think we're still seeing, you know, the remnants of that buy-sell spread between vendors and, and, and buyers um, closing. Um, that's going to continue over the next six months. And then really 2024, I think we'll start to see, you know, not only people need to kind of push stuff out, you know, a lot of the Northern Hemisphere operate on calendar years. So 
there'll be a whole bunch of investment committees sitting out there at the end of 23 saying we are over allocated by three, four, five percent. We need to get this down. Guys, go out and appoint someone to sell five um, percent of our program. And uh, so we think we're really kind of setting this up for a 2024 investment period. And you're going to be calling the fund over a three-year period, is capital call structure? Yeah, that's right. Capital call structure over a three-year period, probably more front-ended than your traditional private equity fund given mm-hmm. you know, most of the investments 24. we'll be making will be uh, relatively fully funded up front. And, and you're talking about a seven-year fund with two sort of standard one-year extension periods. But I think, did I see something about a six-year sell-out option? Yeah, so we've, we're basically giving people the opportunity to kind of take a liquidity option at, at year six. So, um, you know, in essence, you know, what we want to do is give people the opportunity to kind of have a, a relatively, you know, kind of short uh, exposure to private equity, um, give people um, the opportunity, you know, if they have a good experience, stay in, or, you know, if they kind of need to kind of create liquidity for themselves, then we can kind of facilitate a liquidity mechanism. But I think, you know, the typical investment, uh, you know, we'll be trying to make is a private equity fund that's four, four or five or six years old. And so we're pretty confident that by year six, we'll be pretty well through, you know, most of the fund, you know, kind of investment period, and we'll, we'll potentially be left with a relatively small tail. So, um, so we think that that liquidity option, while it's there as a backstop, you know, our view is we want to give people not only their capital back in that six-year period, but, you know, a genuine amount of their profit as well. How do you finance or structure that option there for people to sell out? Are you actually selling the underlyings or using payments back? How do you do that yeah, if you're so not selling the portfolio? Yeah, so we won't need to sell the portfolio. We'll have a debt facility in place to okay. take advantage of that uh, to, or to kind of fulfil that. Um, alternatively, we'll have, you know, other investors that will look to come in to, um, to, you know, kind of provide that liquidity at that point in time. In essence, you'll have this great secondary by then. It'll be really mature and, and throwing off a lot of liquidity. So um, so we're pretty comfortable that, um, you know, the liquidity there at the back end will be will be there for people who want to go. Mike, thanks for joining us inside the rope for the second time in 2023. Appreciate thanks, it. David. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.